0: And while the kids are making their way back, if you have your Bible with you, you can open up to Luke chapter 22. You can hold your place there, and you can also turn to 1 Corinthians 11. Those are the, the two passages that we're going to uh, spend the, the front half, at least, of our, uh, of our sermon in. And because they're relatively brief, we'll go ahead and read both of those together before we start to, uh, to work through. Uh, a look at the Lord's Supper. So Luke 22, we'll pick up at verse 14. And then in First Corinthians 11... We'll pick up at verse 23. So, we start in Luke 22, verse 14, when the hour had come, Jesus reclined at the table and the apostles with Him. And He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves, for I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. Go from Luke 22 now over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Listen to what Paul says as he makes reference to the event that we just read about. Paul says, starting in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 23, "'For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you.' For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. This is the Word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as You feed us from Your Word that You would give us the ability also to find that we are feeding on the life of Your Son, We ask that your Holy Spirit will be active in our midst to give us uh, renewed minds and uh, greater understanding into the things that we read and the things that you reveal to us, the things that you have already revealed, waiting for us in your written word. And Father, I also pray that if there is anyone here this morning with us, or perhaps even watching on a live stream, who does not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that as uh, we consider his sacrifice, and the way that He has given us the ability to remember that and to continue to build our lives on it, that You would begin to move and work on their heart just as an act of sheer grace, uh, that You would bring them to an awareness of their sin, their need for a Savior, and that You would bring them to the full assurance and confidence that forgiveness is found in Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Your name. Amen. So last week we did sort of a little introduction uh, to church ordinances, and in the introduction then also looked at the first of two ordinances, Uh, two ordinances for the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, This morning we're going to be looking at the Lord's Supper, and one of the things you'll notice, especially if you have have notes with you or the notes, the handouts that were at the, the head of the aisle, Uh, The pattern is essentially the same, or the the basic uh, structure of the outline is the same this week as it was last week. The verses are a little bit different, but the outline is largely the same because as we uh, define and come to understand what a church ordinance is, well, there should be a way in which if baptism is an ordinance, if the Lord's Supper is an ordinance, there should be a lot of overlap or similarity between the two. So, just for the sake of clarity, perhaps by way of repetition, uh, you have at the top of your notes there a definition or an explanation as to what an ordinance is. An ordinance is a ceremonial act that Christ has commanded His church to perform. These ordinances act as visible signs and seals of the promises of salvation in Jesus Christ and... As we practice these ordinances, they demonstrate our faith and obedience toward God. We clarified last week that it's important to recognize up front that there is no magic in the ordinance itself. There's no magic in the water of baptism, there's no holy water in that sense. When we have communion together, when we take the bread and when we take the cup to drink, there's no magic formula that that goes on there. These are regular, normal elements, water, bread, juice. But it's in what those things signify and it's in what the Spirit is doing through those reenactments that the real benefit comes and so I want to say up front again that whether we're talking about, uh, whether we're talking about uh, baptism or we're talking about the Lord's Supper, if God by His Word is not working by the Spirit in our hearts through faith, baptism in the Lord's Supper will mean absolutely nothing, okay? One of the ways to think of this, and I don't think I mentioned this last week, this might be helpful, we... Uh, Remember a couple of weeks ago we said that one of the things that the church does when it gathers is that it, uh, it speaks the Word, it sings the Word, it sees the Word. And the ordinances are one of the ways in which we see the Word in dramatic form or reenacted. Okay, so there's a, there's a parallel way in which... How God works with His Word, with the Scriptures, is also similar to the way that He works in the ordinances. So think of it this way. If um, you, you have the Word, the Word in and of itself is not some sort of uh, magical enchantment or something like that. So, for example, uh, uh, the commandments say, uh, you shall not covet, right? So I'm walking through the neighborhood and I see my neighbor drive through with a brand new shiny boat. Right? And I look over at my wife and I say, quick, repeat the commandment to me. (laughs) And she says, you shall not covet. And then all of a sudden I go into a trance, I will not covet. Right? That's not the way that Scripture works. Furthermore, we also know and recognize that with all of the promises that God is going to see to it, that His Word does not return empty or void, that it will accomplish all of the work that he, sets it, that he sets it to do, we also know that the way in which we experience that is varied and is full of ups and downs, so that when I open the Scriptures and I read... There are many, many times, more times than I like to admit, where as I'm reading the Scriptures, I may not necessarily feel anything unique or new as I'm I'm reading. Nevertheless, I read in part because of faith that this is God's Word given to me, this is God's Word given to us, and that in reading and meditating on it, God is going to fulfill His promise to make it a gift and a blessing to us. In the same way, then, baptism in the Lord's Supper does not put put any of us into any kind of spiritual trance. It does not make us super saints. But through the regular observing and practicing of these ordinances, because they are gifts given to us by the Lord Himself, with His Spirit and with His Word, He gives us the ability to appreciate the things that we are receiving from Him in those acts, in those ordinances. All right, so let me say two things then. This is just sort of, I wasn't even really planning on doing this, but here it is. If you're here and you're not really sure that you have been united to Christ by faith, all right. You can go through all the religious motions and all the ceremonies and rites and, and stuff like that that you want, and it won't mean anything. It will not change your heart. The ordinances do not have the ability to do that. Only God does, and He does it by His Spirit in creating faith within us. At the same time, if you are here and you're a Christian and you're you like me like probably so many of us if we were honest enough to admit it you sheepishly would admit that oftentimes when you come to observe say the ordinance of the Lord's supper communion and you just feel eh not not really very impressed not really very moved by what's going on okay one of the best things that you can do is to say Okay, on faith, I believe that Christ has given this to us as his church for our good, for our benefit. Therefore, if I don't sense or know the benefit that this is to be for me, the problem is not with the ordinance, the problem is with my heart. So God, would you please come and move and work on my heart and my mind so that little by little, from one small step of faith to the next, I come to see and understand more clearly what it is that you're doing by giving this gift of communion to your church. There's nothing wrong with praying that way. So having said that then, three observations that we want to make about communion that we also made about, the, uh, made about baptism last week. Number one, if an ordinance is... Something is a ceremonial act that Christ has given to His church. We would expect that Christ commanded us to observe the Lord's Supper. And in fact, we already read passages where that was abundantly clear. So Jesus says in Luke 22, the passage that we already read, He takes bread and He breaks it. He takes a cup and He hands it out. This is my body. This is the blood of the new covenant. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this, eat this, take this, drink this. Do you, all of those are commands that are given. You hear that? Now, it can be that, again, because of the weakness and the fickleness of our hearts, that we take a command from Christ... And rather than viewing that command as something good and generous that that God in His Son is given to us, we see it as being burdensome or we see it as being more of an obligation than as a gift. If that's the case, I say once again, the problem is with our hearts and with the fact that we don't really recognize the nature of God in the way that He gives commands to His people. If you go back, for example, remember when we started our series in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 1, the very first words that God speaks to His image bearers, to Adam and Eve, is a word of blessing in the form of a command. Be fruitful and multiply. We're told, before we're quoted that statement... The Lord blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Do you hear that? So you could, you could look at that and you could say, Look hey at God just bossing people around all the time. i got to go out and be fruitful. i got to go out and multiply. i got to go out and have dominion. Or you could look at this and say, The fact that, the, that God is giving this command to His image bearers, must mean, because God is good, that He is commanding them with something that is for their good. And that when Jesus, as God incarnate, God in the flesh, commands us with any number of different things, all of the commands that He gives us are ultimately for our good, including the command to observe the Lord's Supper. After the Genesis series, we did a couple weeks on two Psalms. We did Psalm 105 and we did Psalm 106, right? I'm sure you've got it tattooed in your brain, so, right, you've memorized the outline and all that kind of stuff. For those of you who may not have been here, okay, for those of you who may not have been here, one of the things that we saw in Psalm 106, there was a contrast in the Psalms. In Psalm 105, God was being praised because He was a God who remembered His covenant. And because he remembered that was always on the forefront of his mind, so to speak, he was always acting in a way to fulfill all of his good promises. Psalm 106 comes in, and in contrast to the Lord, who always remembers to do good things and to fulfill his promises for his people, Psalm 106 comes in and it gives an overview of Israel's history and it says, you know what the problem with God's people were? They always forgot. They forgot what God had done for them, and so they began to stray and go after other gods. They forgot that God had given them a blessing here, and so they went to try to find it there. They forgot this, they forgot that, and all the time that they were forgetting, they were wandering and drifting further and further from the Lord until the Lord would shake them and get their attention and draw them back in. Have you ever stopped to think about the fact that one of the reasons that God gives us the Lord's Supper is so that we don't fall into that same pattern? Human nature has not changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. I easily, often, frequently forget how good God is to me. And He knows that. He knows and He knew that we as a people would be forgetful, that we would be tempted oftentimes to take for granted the things that He has done for us and as a way to protect us from that forgetfulness and that wandering because our minds are not centered on Him, He graciously gives us a memorial sign, the Lord's Supper, to say, Do this in remembrance of me. Don't forget. To the extent that we do not recognize this as a command of Christ, as a good command, we will fall well short of the blessings that God intends to give to His people. And let me be very, very practical here for a minute, okay? Communion, as we'll see a little, in just a little bit here, in the Lord's Supper, that is a communal, a family meal, all right? that we observe, we obey that command by taking the Lord's Supper together. We express that, practically speaking, by gathering together on the Lord's Day, right? Sunday, the first day of the week, the day in which Christ was resurrected, when everything was made new. We observe the Lord's Supper on Sunday when we're gathered together. If you're not here with the gathered church on Sunday... How are you going to obey this command? If you come to Sunday school in the morning because that's, your, that's your, your small group, your tight-knit community, the people that you know well, and then after Sunday school when you get a little bit of Bible, and then you leave and you go home... you're not going to be able to obey the command of your Lord and Savior to observe communion with your covenant family. If Sunday for you is just another free day, and as long as there isn't anything more pressing on the calendar, then we'll go to church... you're going to find it very difficult to keep this command with any kind of regularity. And if you're not keeping it with any kind of regularity, let me just make a word to parents and grandparents and guardians, why should you think that your kids will take it seriously? This is not to turn the command into a burden. It's not to turn the command into a legal requirement. It is to say, however, that we would do well to consider that Christ never gives His people commands that are just empty, showy signs that have no real significance or meaning behind it. Everything that He commands us to do, He commands us to do for our good, for our enjoyment of Him, and that includes regularly observing the ordinance of the Lord's Supper together as a covenant community. So the Lord's Supper, like baptism, is an ordinance that is given to us by a clear command of Christ. We ought to keep it. We ought to share in it. Number two, again going back to the idea that this command is itself a blessing when we keep it, when we observe it. The Lord's Supper, also like baptism, is a sign and a seal of the promise of our salvation. Remember last week we used the illustration of the girl who gets a ring from the guy who is pursuing her. And we said that the ring works in, in two ways. Number one, the ring on her finger is a visible external sign that she is in a relationship with another person. It's a sign of what this young man has done for her. He's pursued her. He's invested in her. He's drawn her to himself. He's won her heart. She's won his heart. Right, That sort of a thing. And the way that that is signified is, in part, by giving a ring. The ring itself is not really the true essence of the relationship or ultimately the marriage, but it does signify it. So the ring is a sign, but the ring is also in some ways a seal, meaning it's a way that the girl, the young lady, can draw confidence and assurance that this man is in it for the long haul. I am intending to commit myself to you, and I'm intending to take you for myself. Talk is cheap. Show me that you mean it. And so he gives her a ring. In the same way with baptism and the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper stands as a sign of what God has done for us in Christ and as a seal to give us greater confidence and assurance in our faith. So the sign part is, is fairly straightforward and easy, right? Even in some ways more straightforward than even than the sign of baptism because in the Lord's Supper, Christ himself says, this bread is my body given for you. He breaks the bread. My body, like this bread, is going to be broken so that you people can be fixed and healed and be put back together. This cup, this this juice, this wine, this represents my blood, which is going to be poured out so that you can be made clean, so that you can be forgiven. That's what the Lord's Supper does by way of sign. It gives us the ability to see visibly, to dramatize, if you will, what God did in that upper room with his disciples when he made a promise to them that what he was about to do the next day was going to pay for the forgiveness of their sins so that they could be reconciled to God forever. And he does it through nothing less than by giving up his own body and by giving his own blood to the point of death, even death on a cross." So every time we sit and we share in the Lord's Supper together, one of the things that we're seeing, we're seeing another reminder, another sign of what Christ has done for us. That Christ gave Himself over to be beaten and bloodied so that we could be made whole. Christ gave Himself over to be broken so that we could be fixed. He gave Himself over to death so that we could be made alive. And He did all of that in order to pay, to take the judgment, the penalty for our sins. But it's not just that, that the Lord's Supper is a sign that sort of reminds us of what was done in, in the distant past... It's also a seal. It has present significance by the way it encourages us to continue to put our confidence in the work of Christ. Think of what Christ does when he gives this sign and this seal, when he gives the Lord's Supper. He he could have used any number of signs, but he does bread and drink, food and drink. He gives them bread and he says, here, take eat this, you're going to touch it with your hands, you're going to taste it with your tongue, you're going to ingest it, it's going to go in you. In other words, one of the things that we are being told as we enjoy the Lord's Supper together is that this is what the Lord has done for us. The Lord has given Himself, not just externally, but so that through the power of His Holy Spirit, He can actually be one with us in a much closer way than what food is one with us to our body. Do you see? So J.I. Packer makes a great quote that I'm going to read to you. He says that one of the things that we miss when we come to the Lord's Supper, is that because we tend to put a lot of focus and a lot of emphasis on the sign value, how it signifies the death of Christ, we miss too often the assurance that participating in this sign ought to give to us. Listen to what Packer says about the way that the Lord's Supper should work on our hearts to give us greater confidence and greater assurance of our salvation in Christ. Packer says, we should be saying in our hearts, that is, as we're, we're taking communion, we should be saying in our hearts, as sure as I see and touch and taste this bread and this wine, so sure it is that Jesus Christ is not a fancy but a fact that He is for real, and that He offers me Himself to be my Savior, my bread of life, and my guide to glory. He has left me this rite, this gesture, this token, this ritual action as a guarantee of this grace. He instituted it, and it is a sign of life-giving union with Him, and I'm taking part in it, and thus I know that I am His and He is mine forever. If you're still in Luke, hold, hold your place here. Go over to John chapter 6. This is not a passage on the Lord's Supper or on communion per se, but it does have a lot of parallels. And probably is sort of an undercurrent, if you will, to what Jesus would do later by instituting the Lord's Supper. Skip down in John chapter 6, let's see, let's start at verse 48. We could could start in any number of places, just we'll start at verse 48. This This is Jesus in the section in which He makes one of those very profound and provocative statements, I am the bread of life. And listen to what Jesus says. So pick up John 6, verse 48. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, "'How can this man give us his flesh to eat?' So Jesus said to them, "'Truly, truly, I say to you, "'unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man "'and drink His blood, you have no life in yourselves.'" He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him." As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven. Not as the fathers ate and died, he who eats this bread will live forever. And then as you would expect as you continue to go on, even some of Jesus' disciples say, he's been out in the sun too long. What in the world are we supposed to do with this? The guy is telling us that we have to eat him. It doesn't seem to be much of a stretch that what Jesus is using in some way in John chapter 6 as an analogy, right? God kept His people alive in the wilderness by giving them bread from heaven, manna. But even that really did not keep them alive forever because they all died. However, I'm going to give you bread from heaven, Me, that will give you spiritual life so that you can live forever. So if you want to live forever, you better be feeding on me. And then is it any wonder that after saying, you have to eat my body and drink my blood, that Jesus sits in the upper room with his disciples and he says, here, take and eat. This is my body. Drink this. This is my blood. So that every time that we come back to the Lord's table, every time we enjoy communion together, you know what we're doing? We're telling ourselves, we're telling one another, we're telling the world around us that in order for us to find life, we have to find it in feeding on Christ. And I have to come back and I have to feed on Christ constantly. The Lord's Supper is a sign and a seal. The Lord's Supper, number three, is also an act of faith and obedience. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Let me just key in on one phrase out of several that we could draw on that Paul says... about what is happening when we obey the command to do this in remembrance of Christ. Look at 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. Paul says, "'For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes.'" You proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. What in the world does that mean? Well, the the first part is is fairly simple and straightforward enough, right? In the same way that the broken bread and and the cup represents the broken body and the blood of Christ, that He died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, we are proclaiming that that is what Christ did for us, and we are obediently signifying that. But notice that Paul says, you proclaim His death until He comes, which means part of what we're doing when we observe the Lord's Supper together is not just merely saying, I believe that Christ did that for me and for us, but we're also saying, and we fully believe and expect that He's going to do all the other things that He promised to do for us as well. So in the passage in Luke that we read, what does Jesus say? He says, I've greatly desired to to have this meal with you. But I tell you the truth, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine again until when? Until I do it with you in the kingdom. So that every time that we take the drink and we let it pass over our lips and we ingest it and take it in, what we're reminding ourselves of is the fact that Christ is sustaining us, that He is keeping us for one more day, all in anticipation of the fact that He is keeping us for one more day to bring us to the fulfillment of all of the good promises that He has made, where we will enjoy the riches of His blessings together with Him forever without interruption. Hold your place here in 1 Corinthians and go to Isaiah chapter 25. Jesus says, I won't drink from the fruit of the vine until I do it with you in my Father's kingdom. I wonder if Jesus may have had a passage like this in mind. Isaiah 25, start at verse 6. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, "'Choice pieces with marrow and refined aged wine. "'And on this mountain he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, "'even the veil which is stretched over all nations. "'He will swallow up death for all time. "'And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces, "'and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. "'For the Lord has spoken.'" And it will be said in that day. We will say in that day. Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited. That he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Every time we come together to share in this communion meal, the Lord's Supper, that is a part of what we are proclaiming. We're proclaiming that we are waiting for the Lord to return to remake all of this broken mess, to undo the curse, to make death itself die to remove sickness and sorrow and pain. And we believe that as sure as He has removed our sins and declared us forgiven, that He is going to remove all of this other junk from this world and give us a new life that will never be interrupted or broken again. And we are saying, as confident as we are, that we are tasting this food right now, we are confident that we are going to be tasting the riches of God in a new heaven and new earth. Lord, let it come quickly. I wonder if, just as a side note, I wonder if one of the ways that God's people, that the church, could actually... Bear witness to the world outside is by prioritizing our gatherings on Sunday morning more. By prioritizing the blessing of the Lord's Supper more. Such that rather than trying to get church and our gathering to fit into our schedule, our schedule has to fit our gathering or it doesn't fit. Why would you do that? That's not the way the world works. And the church says, well, because in my mind and in my heart, the things that I am hoping for and longing for the most, I don't find here or there or with this group or that group or in that event. I find it when I gather with God's people and I'm reminded of the promises of God in Christ and all the things that are coming to me. And every week I need to get more of that to remind me of what it is that I'm moving towards. If we are honest enough to say that we don't desire those things, it's not because our desire for other things are so strong, it's because our desires for the best things are so weak. Let me wrap up with three points of practical application, or practical theology, if you will, about what the Lord's Supper, in light of all this... What does this look like, perhaps with a little bit more specificity, in the life of a local congregation? So, three things. One, in light of what we've read, we ought to consider that communion, that the Lord's Supper, is a family meal to be shared. Number two, that it's a meal for our assurance, but not for presumption. And number three, that this meal is never withheld and it never runs dry. First one, a family meal to be shared. It needs to be said so that we are all with one understanding and of one mind on this, that the significance of the Lord's Supper is nothing less than a covenant meal. And unless you are part of the covenant in Christ, you ought not to be taking part in that covenant meal. Does that make sense? In other words, this meal that God gives through Christ to His people is given to those who have been brought into covenant relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not given indiscriminately to the world. It's given specifically, graciously to His people. The only people who ought to come and take from the Lord's table are those who have been tied to Jesus Christ by faith, by repentance, And by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit to say, I can come sit at this meal because I'm part of the family of God in Jesus Christ. But along with that, go to Matthew chapter 26. All of the gospel writers record Jesus in the upper room with the disciples and, and all make reference or allusion to the Lord's Supper. But they all do it in slightly different ways. Look at the the unique way that Matthew draws out the significance of the Lord's Supper. Matthew 26, verses 27 and 28. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is My blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. Drink of this all of you." This, the Lord's Supper is meant to be a meal, a ceremonial act that we share in together, not separately or individually. It's something that He's given to His people as a covenant community. You people, you eat and drink this together. I appreciate the sentiment that sometimes goes that sometimes is expressed. You'll you'll see today sometimes all right, just bear with me. You'll see sometimes today Christians in a wedding ceremony, right? Perhaps the couple will take communion together. And I understand the sentiment there. I understand what they're doing, what they're signifying, that they want their marriage to be identified by the saving work of Jesus Christ and that marriage is right an image of the relationship between Christ and His church and everything like that. I worry a little bit, though, or I, I'm, there's a little bit of concern that when we do those things, what we are unintentionally doing is that we're starting to personalize or privatize what Christ had meant to be a corporate act. In other words, He doesn't mean for a couple or for two or three people to hole up over here in a room and to enjoy this ceremonial meal together. No, it's for the family to enjoy together. So, the family ought to be eating together, watching one another as they eat. That's what Christ intended. Take, eat, drink all of you One of the things that happens when we are united to Christ is that we are united to one another. And Paul says himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that because there is one bread that we eat from, we therefore are one body. In part, what we do in the Lord's Supper together is meant to signify our union with Christ and each other. And so we ought to relish the opportunity to be able to do that together in order to bear witness to ourselves that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Number two, go to 1 Corinthians 11, 27 and 28. This is one of those passages that if you're not careful with, it will make you sweat and make you get weak and shaky in the knees, and you will say, if this is it, I'm never going to come take of the Lord's Supper again. Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven and 28, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord." But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Anyone want to try to meet that standard when they come to the table? All right, here's the thing. I want to try to reassure you, this this is good news understood correctly. Okay? We, We don't have a lot of time to get into it. I'll make a shameless plug for Sunday night again. If this provokes some questions for you, come back tonight at 6 o'clock. We open it up to Q&A, and you can ask whatever question you want, and we'll wrestle with it together. But I'm not going to be able to get into all the finer points right now. Having said that, and whetted your appetite. Having said that, the problem that Paul is dealing with, with the Corinthian church, is that, as he says earlier in the chapter, when you come together to share this meal, you're not coming together for the Lord's Supper. You're coming, and you're sectioning each other off between the rich and the poor, the haves and the have-nots. And the people who are rich and who have, they're using this as an opportunity to turn this just into a, a feast, a pleasure feast, and they're getting drunk and wasted. And Paul is saying, what good is any of that doing? And so he rehearses then why it is that they do the Lord's Supper, right? Because Christ told us to. And then he comes back and he basically says the verses that we just read, if you eat or drink in an unworthy manner, you will be guilty of the body and blood of Christ. In other words, the point is not first and foremost, are you worthy to eat and drink? Are you worthy to take and consume Christ? If that were the standard, nobody would participate in communion. Listen, people, that's the basic message of the gospel, that we are not worthy, but He gives to us anyway. What Paul is saying, though, when he says, you need to be careful how you do this, how do you approach, how do you come together, examine yourself. The word that he's using there is the idea of you better make sure that you are genuine and that you are actually in the covenant community because the way that some of you are behaving right now gives me an idea that you're in fact maybe not part of the covenant community. And if you're not part of the covenant community, but you're coming in and presuming on God's grace that you can just take this and it's no big deal, you are shortchanging the significance of this right and this ordinance. So here's the good news for you and me. When when we gather together and we celebrate the Lord's Supper, the only thing, the only thing, one of the few things, let's say it that way, one of the few things that the Lord would have us do is to look into our hearts and say, am I or am I not a child of God? And if by the witness of the Holy Spirit, if because of our faith and our trust in Christ, we can answer that question in the affirmative, that I'm coming to this table as a son, as a daughter, then the Lord says, good, this table is here for you. Not a perfect son, not a perfect daughter, right? So you come through the week and you've been beaten up, and because you're getting beaten up at work, you've lashed out at your coworkers in anger. You've used a a few choice words here or there that you would never deign to use in the presence of other godly Christians. Or you've yelled at your kids, or you've yelled at your spouse, or you've kicked the dog, or you've done whatever. right? And you come in, don't think that because of how rotten my week has been, or how rotten I am, I can't participate, I can't share in this meal. No, it's there for rotten people who have been saved by grace. It's there to say, in spite of your sin, in spite of your disobedience, God gave His Son to pay for that. And not only does He give you the blessing and the gift of forgiveness, He continues to pour out His riches and His kindness to you, day after day, week after week, year after year. And this is just a small token of assurance that He is doing that even now. Jesus in John chapter 6, we'll end here, Jesus in John chapter 6 makes this statement. He has briefly said that He's the bread who comes out of heaven, not like the bread, not like the manna, but before He goes into the longer discussion, He makes a very interesting statement. All that the Father has given Me are Mine, and and He who comes to Me, I will never cast them out. Here's the confidence that we should be drawing from the Lord's Supper. The reason that you're able to come when we celebrate communion is because God, the Father, gave you to His Son. And Christ, in turn, is giving Himself to you. There is little to nothing that you did in that transaction. Do you hear that? The Father gave us to the Son, and the Son gives Himself to us. And one of the ways that we know that he gives himself to us is he says, come to me all that you want and you feed and feast on me and you will find that I never run dry, that I never turn you away and that you will always get what you need to be sustained and nourished and one day even to be fully satisfied. That's how good and gracious a Savior we have. That's what communion is meant to be. Bow with me in prayer. Just take a few moments just to reflect silently on the truth of God's Word as you've heard it this morning. On any way that the Lord may have been speaking to your heart and your mind. maybe by way of comfort, maybe by way of conviction, but call out to Him now. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternal God, three persons in one, how good you are to command that we enjoy the blessings of life with you. How humbling it is to think that we turn so casually and callously from those things that you have given us for our good and for our enjoyment. Father, would you continue to cultivate here at Edgewood a people for Your own glory, whose hearts and minds are continually drawn to You through the work of Jesus Christ, by the power of Your Holy Spirit, that all that You have revealed to us in Your Word and in Your living Word, Your Son, that all that You have revealed, we would take and receive, trusting that it is good news for us and that obedience is a blessing for us to enjoy Thank you that along with our faith, you give us your word to reassure us, and you give us the ordinances to bolster our confidence as we wait for that great day of salvation when the Lord Jesus Christ will return. Amen. As we close out with one final song, I just wonder if you're here and you're not a Christian. Yeah, well, I just kind of wonder, what, what does any of this sound like to you? Right? For some of you, it could sound very foreign and very strange. All right, that's okay. We would like to talk to you about how you can understand it a little bit more clearly and how you can understand it to be true for yourself. There may be some of you here, as an unbeliever, someone who's not a Christian, who hears this and who just says, This is too good to be true. No one is that good no one is that kind, to just fully pay for and cover crimes and sins and offenses and just to give endlessly over and over again. And I'm telling you from my own personal experience, and all of these people, or the majority of these people in this room, can tell you by their own testimony, He really is that good. And He can be that good for you as well. I would love to talk to you after the service. I'll stay and remain as long as is necessary for anyone who wants to talk or has any questions to bring up. But church, let's sing. Amen. We started praising the Lord this morning. Let's close out our service by praising. Would you stand to your feet? Oh, praise the name. Oh, praise the name of the Lord. Smith.